0: This podcast is sponsored by Alt-Legal. Alt-Legal, easy-to-use IP docketing with powerful automation, deadline calculation, and reporting. Hello and welcome to the Alt-Trademarks podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Salmoninger. On this episode, I was joined by Eric Pelton. Eric is a solo practitioner and legal blogger. You can find out more about Eric on his firm website, Eric com. You can find out more about Alt Legal on Twitter at altlegalhq and at altlegal.com. Thank you for joining us and enjoy. Hi, Eric. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So some of the listeners maybe already know who you are, have a popular blog, and you're very active in the IP community. Um, But as I like to do on this podcast, I just wanted to get a little bit of background information before we launch into the topic we're gonna to talk about today. So the one thing in particular I found interesting about your background when I was doing some research is that before you opened your practice, you were a trademark examiner. So can you tell us just a little bit more about that experience, what it was like, um, what it taught you, that sort of thing?
1: Absolutely, of course. and I. I always assume that people don't know who I am. I'm always um, <laughs> rather pleased when sometimes they do, or they say, oh, I've read your tweets or your blog. So, um, but yeah, I was a trademark examiner when I uh, shortly after I graduated from law school. I worked at the USPTO as an examiner for about two years, and it was really a tremendous experience, um, a tremendous education, lots of great people. Um, the best part was... Literally, when you're hired and when you start, you at least then, you go through an entire training exercise for several weeks of classroom discussion and practice and training, and that really took, you know, my knowledge of trademarks, which at the time was one or two courses in law school, to you know, a whole nother level.
0: I spoke with, we've had a couple of other, well, I guess one in particular, uh, people who were previously trademark examiners. Um, The one that's coming to mind is Ed Timberlake. And he was telling me that when he worked there, he got some, like, kind of tips and tricks. I think his were specific to how he did trademark searching. Um, So now as a practitioner, that's always very helpful to him. Was there any insight you picked up when you were working that you found to then be particularly helpful when you turned around and opened a practice working on the other side of things?
1: Well, there certainly are some specific details like how to search the TESS trademark search system or um, how to use the TMEP, Trademark Manual of Examining Procedure, or other kind of research tools and tips that were extremely valuable. But I would say the biggest takeaway for me was having been on the other side, so to speak, and reviewing the types of arguments that advocates for their clients are making about why their trademarks shouldn't be refused is that I came to understand what type of advocacy is the most effective and what type of advocacy um, isn't as effective. Um, And different writing styles and different intensities of arguing that I think really helped form
0: my practice style. And I don't know, if this is, they are connected, but you are, you know, you have this blog and you do a lot of writing about um, trademarks. Was that in part influenced by your time as an examiner? How did you kind of get into blogging in the first place?
1: For many years, I didn't have a blog. I was not um, one of the first trademark bloggers, (laughs) although now my blog has been around, you know, for several years. Um, I, so I, I sort of fell into it and I just decided that you know, it was an effective tool to get the message out, to get your word out, to get your name out, and to spread information. I've never been afraid of sharing expertise or sharing information. I think that in the last century, a lot of lawyers and law firms were afraid of giving away the secrets that maybe clients wouldn't want to hire them if they shared too much information for free. I think, first of all, today, it's impossible to avoid, And, uh, but more importantly, I think that by sharing a lot of information about trademarks and trademark registration and trademark disputes, it shows just how unique and complex every situation is and how valuable the advice and help of an attorney can be. And so I have, um, over the years, tried to take advantage of you know, all different forms of new forms of marketing, whether it's blogging or videos uh, posted to YouTube or social media. And I found that I actually really enjoy writing and communicating. And so I've stuck with it.
0: So this kind of ties right into the topic that I wanted to talk to you about, which is just sort of some of the more unique aspects of how you run your practice. So, you know, the social media and blogging is certainly one. Um, and then you do a couple of other things. So I wanted to kind of talk to you about how you decided to implement those practices and then also pick your brain for any advice you might have for other attorneys who are kind of looking to go into those areas. But I guess to take one step back, we might as well just talk about how you started your practice in the first place. Your practice is uh, out of Virginia and how did you decide to open a practice after working as an Examiner?
1: Well, at the time, in 1999, there were not a tremendous number of law firms that were online in the world of trademarks, and really in any field. And there also were not a tremendous number of law firms that were approachable for small businesses in the world of trademarks. And by approachable, I mean um, from a fee perspective and from a size and positioning of the firm. And so I took advantage of that opportunity of the Internet exploding and of the absence of other firms using the Internet or targeting small businesses and flat fees to you know, launch the firm. And it's amazing when I think back now that for several years, you know, if you searched like trademark registration, I would come up on the first or second page of Google naturally. Yeah. Um, now I'm not sure I'm in the first 50 pages. <laughs>
0: um, when you were first starting, was there anything, I mean, it sounds like you were right on the edge of this, uh, you know, being in touch with a uh, online practice, but was there anything that Surprised you about opening your own practice? Anything where you, like, oh, you know, I didn't even consider that this was going to be a part of this process?
1: Well, there was a lot that surprised me um, <laughs> because in law school, as great as the education was, you know, it was an education about substance and more even about analysis and and thought and research and writing. And it had nothing to do with running your own practice and running your own business. I was fortunate to have been exposed through internships and part-time jobs and family throughout the years to other small businesses and to entrepreneurs. And so I had some idea of what I was getting myself into when I started the practice. But I, you know, for example, I had... No experience, you know, doing marketing. I had no experience hiring people and managing people. Um, I had no experience (laughs) doing accounting. Mm -hmm. Um, So there were many, many things that I had to initially self-teach because I didn't have the funds to outsource them. And then later on, I had to decide um, to sort of let go of them and try to outsource many of them so that I had more time to focus on helping more clients.
0: And now that you've had the practice open for a while, what would you say are some of the best things about having a solo practice? Also it's just a boutique firm. and if there are any you know things that you don't love so much, is there are any bad parts of having that practice for yourself? yeah
1: yeah well, i'll start with, I'll start with the bad part, but but the bad part is far outweighed by the by the good parts for me. um you know i don't I don't enjoy some of the administrative and overhead and oversight aspects of it. I do enjoy being an entrepreneur, and so you have to accept some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do tremendously enjoy the flexibility that it gives me, both the flexibility in my life day-to-day as being my own boss, but also the flexibility in taking the practice where I want it to go, working with the types of clients that I want to work with, um, associating with other attorneys that I want to associate with, you know, exploring pro bono opportunities so that I'm I'm not limited by anybody else's rules or boundaries or traditions. Um, and that's a scary thing. But once I got, you know, and when I was younger, that, that scariness and newness intimidated me a lot. Um, once I was able to break through that and be more confident and more sort of in the direction that I wanted the firm and the work and the practice to go it's been uh, you know full of tremendous opportunities and extremely rewarding
0: and uh, so one of the things that you do that I was going to touch on which kind of ties into this uh, idea you're mentioning about not following necessarily traditional structures is that you do some flat fee uh, billing at your firm which based just based up of talking to lawyers uh, either for this podcast or just sort of you know, in the world, it seems like that's a growing trend, Um, but it's not something that's fully uh, the norm. So how did you decide to go flat fee versus more traditional billing structures?
1: I decided from day one, actually, in 1999, to do flat fee applications. And every single application I filed, essentially, which is several thousand since then, has been on a flat fee basis. I decided it twofold. Because it benefits me, because it saves me the hassle and time of having to keep track of every minute or every email or every phone call. And it provides a great benefit to the client, especially the small business, knowing what the cost is up front, that there's nothing hidden, that there's nothing contingent on something happening or not happening, that the client doesn't have to hesitate to ask me a question or send me an email because they're worried that my response might take 10 minutes and that might cost them some dollars. Right. Um, And all of that, all of that to say is that it's based around the idea of getting paid for the value of what you're providing rather than just the amount of time. There's There's a finite amount of time in the week. Right, um, but there's a much more uh, there's a much wider range of value that can be offered, and the value that I provided when I was, you know, when I was 25 and and knew what doing this is much different than the value um, that I'm providing today, and I'm not sure that the hourly rate, even if it had doubled or tripled,
0: could reflect that. Hmm. Um, Do you have any recommendations for someone who's looking to kind of shift from maybe a billable hour to a flat fee structure? Any, like, tips or advice?
1: Yeah, I I mean, my biggest tip would be don't be afraid. Um, You know, all of the hesitations or arguments that I've heard, I think, are just, in essence, come down to it's something new. I'm not familiar with it. There is some risk involved from that attorney's perspective. And particularly if there's a fair amount of volume, you know, which I have and which I, you know, built into my model from the outset, it 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 gives you more flexibility. That even if the flat fee may be off, you can adjust it as you go forward for new clients. Even if there's one case that takes tens and tens and tens of hours, there's going to be some cases that will. Not take much time at all and go quite smoothly. And the client, in that case, is still getting a tremendous value because they're getting a they're getting their trademark approved or registered without any difficulties. And they knew the full cost upfront, and they didn't have to bear the risk that it might cost thousands of dollars if something went
0: wrong. Right. And then, so the last thing I wanted to touch on that uh, you do it or just part of your practice, I guess it's sort of ancillary to your practice is. As I mentioned before, of course, you're engaged with the IP community and the blogging and you tweet, but you also really engage with other practitioners, particularly young attorneys. So can you talk a little bit about why you think it's important or why you choose to spend uh, you know, time focusing on mentoring and engaging with young attorneys? Yeah.
1: And they, thanks for asking that question because I think it's really important. For many years, I have had law student interns. Law clerks um, have just, you know, been an advisor or counseled other young attorneys or law students, particularly ones that were interested in IP and trademark law, but not exclusively. And it's been really rewarding for me. It's been educational for me to learn from um, younger people. And and I o- always find that teaching people um, <laughs> educates the educator as much as it does the student to sort of go back and revisit the materials or to go back and learn things, but the most important pro- reason um, from my perspective is when I was in law school and I was a little bit lost and unsure what I wanted to do, what type of career I wanted to have, you know I explored as many opportunities as possible, uh, but I never really found that one mentor who who clicked or who helped guide me in the right way and I think that for up-and-coming attorneys, it's valuable to have that experience, really all types of experiences, but to see what it's like to be at a small law firm, to see what it's like working in depth in the world of trademarks, um, and to hear from somebody who's been through a lot of different types of situations in their career.
0: Yeah. um, Are the people who you are... Mentoring or working with I guess really in any capacity, usually people who reach out to you, or do you do anything in particular to kind of make yourself available to those um, people who are seeking like a mentorship relationship? both, both.
1: Uh, some people seek me out or or they've heard of me through a friend or a professor or a colleague. and some I seek out uh, not really not directly but indirectly through being involved in aBA and other organizations, and through generally almost can, almost every semester seeking interns in the DC area to come be in our office and see what it's like and have internships.
0: I, in this last question, it might be kind of hard to answer in this format, but as a young lawyer myself, I'm certainly uh, curious. Is there anything in particular that you're sort of hoping to impart on the people that you're Mentoring, or I mean, I guess even ones that you aren't mentoring, just other young attorneys in the IP space. Any sort of, you know, main takeaways that you're hoping they're getting from that experience? Well, I think the main takeaways
1: are learning some of those things, or at least being exposed to some of those things that you don't learn about in law school that you do need for the real world. Whether it's how to deal with a opposing counsel on the other side who's um, difficult to deal with, or whether it's how to Deal with a client in a uh, a meeting who you're trying to help but isn't very uh, good communicator and forthcoming with information, or how to present yourself, you know, when you're going to a CLE meeting and networking with other attorneys or students or professionals. So all all of those little things that are important to a successful career, um, but aren't really taught in any way in law school, I think are valuable, that are ho- are hopefully somehow translated in in some manner through the mentorships. Because that, that's, that's what I think can be the most valuable part, it's the, those intangible
0: things. Definitely. It'd be nice if there was sort of a practicum course in law school where you got <laughs> that sort of uh, education as well.
1: Well, and I think that law schools are moving towards that a little bit with more clinics and more externship opportunities and more real-world learning, but I think there's certainly still a long way to go.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, so that covers the the main topic I wanted to pick your brain about, but I usually like to wrap up the interviews with a series of rapid-fire questions that are a little bit less about your life as an attorney and just a little bit more uh, fun. So you ready? Sure. Okay, what would you be doing if you weren't an attorney?
1: Well, I always dreamed of playing for the Boston Red Sox. So, you know, in, in the back of my head, I, I always still think that, that that's my fallback position.
0: <laughs> uh, where do you get most of your legal news? Uh, probably these days from Twitter. Um, And what's your favorite legal conference?
1: INTA, the international trademark. Association's annual conference is uh, just a great time to network with other attorneys of all varieties, from big firm to small firm to in house and from every country around the world.
0: Uh, what's the last app you downloaded on your phone? The
1: last app, I just got Apple TV this week, and, and oh. it might change my life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then the last one is what's the best piece of advice or just a good piece of advice that you've been given?
1: you know, sort of piggybacking off of the mentoring discussion and the conference answer, I would say is to get involved in some community, whether it's a law association or a local chamber of commerce or even local government. I've dipped my toes into all of these things over the years and I've found them rewarding. And I've found that while you give some time and you share some insight and expertise, you get a lot back out of it. And even if it doesn't directly grow your business, um, it definitely impacts your business and and can help grow your business.
0: Wonderful. So that's it. So thank you so much for joining me. Do you have any parting words of wisdom, anything that we didn't cover that you want to leave the listeners with?
1: I'll just add one more um, pitch is to do pro bono work. I know that INTA has a new initiative to help set lawyers up with pro bono work. I don't know the details of that. Our firm has um, had its own pro bono program for several years, and that also is tremendously rewarding. And again, we probably get as much as we give in doing that type of service.
0: Yeah, I'll link to that, that INTO program you're talking about. I, I saw a link for the other day, so I'll link to that in the show notes as well in case anyone wants to check it out. And if anyone wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do so?
1: The best way is through my website, which is erikpelton, I'm actually launching a new website in the next 30 to 60 days, so stay tuned for that. Or really just search my name. I'm lucky that my name is relatively unique enough that if you search my name, you'll find a million ways to, <laughs> to contact me.
0: Okay, great. Thanks so much, Eric. Okay, thank you for your time that's this week's episode thank you for joining us and see you next time